Well, good morning. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and it's my privilege to lead us as we continue our series called E-Transfer, looking at what God has given to us and what we're called to pass on to others. And so far in this series, we've looked at what we call our five E words, the five words that begin with the letter E that define everything that we do here as a church. And if you miss those, you can catch up on those online and, and check out those sermons But today we're going to be taking a bit of a turning point in our sermon series, and we're going to begin to look at spiritual gifts. Uh, Spiritual gifts, if you're not familiar with that language, these are special skills or abilities given by the Holy Spirit to each believer in the church to use for the sake of serving and for carrying on the ministry that Jesus has given to us. And in the weeks to come, we're going to be looking at a lot of the specific gifts that God has given and talking about them in some detail. But what we're going to do today is kind of take a bit of a broader perspective. And we're going to ask the question of what are spiritual gifts? How are they called to function in the church? And what does the Bible have to say about them? And so to do this, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that's where we're going to be today. If you grab the Bible out of the seat back in front of you, that's on page 959. And we're going to be working our way through the chapter. And in the church in Corinth at this time, they have a lot of experience with spiritual gifts, but there's also a lot of confusion. They're doing a lot of stuff with spiritual gifts, but there's a lot of envy, there's a lot of pride, there's a lot of confusion and chaos. And so Paul writes to this church, trying to help them out. And we get the benefit of reading what he had to say. So let's pray and then dive into the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that speaks to us even today. And so, Father, we pray now that as we prepare to read your word together and study it together, that you would just be with us by your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you just put away any distractions that we have in our minds right now, things that we're thinking about, things that we're worried about, any fears or anxieties. And Father, I pray that we would hear from you this morning. Father, the words that we read, that you would speak those words to our hearts right now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 12, we'll start reading in verse 4 and go to 11. And this is where Paul really sets the foundation for everything he's going to talk about in the rest of the chapter. He says this, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. And now Paul will go on to list a number of examples. He says in verse eight, for to one is given through the spirit, the utterance of wisdom and to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. As I said before, this is where Paul is kind of laying the foundation for everything he's going to talk about. And he kind of highlights three truths about spiritual gifts. And the first one is this. He says, first of all, there's variety of gifts. He's saying it's not just one thing. There's a variety of gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the church, but they're all given by the same spirit. It's this variety, but all from the same spirit. Same God, same Lord, same Spirit who gives these gifts. And he says, second of all, the second thing you need to know is each person, each member of the body of Christ receives one of these gifts. And third, he says, it's actually the Holy Spirit that chooses which gifts he gives. 
And so if we put all these three things together, your outline says this at the top. It says, each person receives at least one of the various gifts chosen by the Holy Spirit to use for the common good. And so we have this concept that we're going to see throughout the chapter of, on the one hand, this diversity, this diversity of members, this diversity of gifts, but on the other hand, this unity, that we're all to use our gifts for the common good. And what Paul does now is he turns to a metaphor to explain this. He turns to the metaphor of the human body. And what he does is he says this in verse 12. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Paul says here that the church is like a body. It's got many members, many different parts coming into play, but all towards one unified purpose. And I think it's really interesting that so often as Christians, we'll refer to the the church as the body of Christ. We'll talk about the body. Oftentimes, we don't really even recognize why we're saying that. We just kind of say, well, we're the body. Well, this is why we say that. Because many members, many different parts coming into play, but all towards the same unified goal. Many members and yet one body. I don't know if any of you are into running. Just show of hands how many people are into running around here. Yeah, like three of us. Okay, that's going to be good. So this might not be a story you have heard before, but just last week, a guy named Elliot Kipchoge did something that no runner in the history of mankind, as far as we know, had ever done before. What he did is he ran a marathon, 42.2 kilometers, and he did that in under two hours. Now, some of you are like, that's impressive, right? Yeah, that is very impressive. Uh, The average time to complete a marathon, for those who can actually do it, is four hours and 22 minutes, and this is like less than half of that. Uh, To give some perspective, there's this great video I saw this week. Uh, They set up a treadmill a couple years ago in public, and it was like this six feet wide by 20 feet long treadmill, and they set it up in public, and they set it so that people could try to run at the pace you would need to run to to do a marathon in under two hours. And so this, it was amazing because you just had people coming in with street clothes on and they'd, whatever shoes they were wearing, and they'd, they'd stand in the middle of this treadmill in front of everyone else, and then they'd start to kind of speed it up. And the person would start jogging. And it would get faster, and the person would start running. And, and these people in full business attire just running in full-out sprints until eventually they'd fall on their face and get flung off the back of the treadmill. <laughs> And it was just one person after the next just doing this over and over again. And it would just show how incredibly fast you would need to run to complete something like this. Actually, at the end of the video, there was one, there's a, a guy from high school a, 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 who was a runner. And he was able to actually keep up this pace for a little while. But eventually, he, he got so tired and he, he just had to stop. See, it's the kind of pace that most people can only do for like you know, a couple seconds, some could do for some minutes, but to do this for two hours is actually incredible. When you look at the history of this world record, in 1908, the record was set at two hours and 55 minutes. And over those next 50 years, there was 40 minutes shaved off the record. And so that's some pretty, pretty big improvement over, over that amount of time. But what happened is the, the progress started to really slow down. And in the 50 years from, from now to 50 years ago, there's only been seven minutes shaved off that world record. And so if you can kind of picture the graph, it starts with this radical kind of decline, but then it really begins to even out. And people have debated for many years, is two hours even possible? 
Is two hours even possible for a human? And in 1991, a scientist named Michael Joyner, he published a paper in which he did a study on whether this was possible. And he concluded that, yes, it is possible for a human to run under two hours. But he said, everything would have to line up perfectly. He said, first of all, you need to have an athlete whose body type is just perfectly suited for long distance running. The right proportions of legs to torso, the right lung capacity, the the right heart strength. You'd have to have someone who is perfectly suited for this. He said, not only that, this person would have to train for years and years without injury. This person would have to have every part of their life devoted to this. This person would have to also be running on a track that was at the right altitude above sea level. It couldn't have any hills in it. It would have to have no real big turns in the track. Everything would have to be perfect if this was going to be accomplished. And what happened was on October 12th, 2019, all those things came together. And Elliot Kipchoge, he ran a marathon in one hour, 59 minutes and 40 seconds. And when you look at the videos that, that break down his running, running style and what's happening in his body, it's incredible because every single part of his leg and his foot and his, and his whole body actually is working together in unison towards this goal. You know, his foot pushing off and then coming back through, his lungs breathing, bring, bringing that oxygen in, his heart pumping that oxygen to the different parts of the body, the different muscles that are going to use it. Every single part of his body working together towards this common goal. Not only that, of course, other people coming alongside and and helping him to reach this goal. And I think what Paul is saying is that's actually what the church is supposed to look like. I I think it's awesome. We have this graphic in our series, the e-transfer, and it's a a graphic of a person running. I think it's so helpful in a lot of ways because on the one hand, it's this image of taking what we received and passing it on. But I think on the other hand, it's this image of the body working in unison towards a common goal. And Paul's saying this is what the body is supposed to be like. Every member with our different roles, different giftings, different things about us, all of us working together towards a common goal. The body of Christ, I think we can picture it as this, this metaphor of a person running a race. So this is what Paul does. He, he outlines the idea, like I said before. He says this is what it's supposed to look like. Uh, This is what spiritual gifts are supposed to be. This is how they're supposed to function in the church. The church is supposed to be a body, but Paul's going to acknowledge, he's going to say, the reality is this is not what the church looks like right now. He says to the Corinthian church, you don't look like a person who's running a marathon. You look like a person who's kind of stumbling around trying to figure out what's going on, being pulled in different directions. And so now Paul's going to move from this ideal picture and he's going to say, what's actually happening in the church and how can we address these problems? We see him do this in verse 15. He says this, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. I think Paul's addressing the person in the church who looks around and says, well, I can't do that, and I don't have this gift, and I'm not able to really contribute here, so therefore, I don't really belong to this, to this body. I don't really have anything to contribute to what's going on in this church. 
And Paul says, okay, that's what you want to say. Let's take that logic and apply it to the human body. And if the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, we recognize right away just how foolish that sounds. But Paul's saying, you're doing the same thing when you look at how you've been gifted and you conclude that I actually don't belong to this body because I don't have this gift or, or I don't have that gift. And he's saying the body's not meant to be one, kind of everyone having the exact same gift. And he says, actually, even if that was possible, it wouldn't be what you'd want. But I think the reality is, and this is something that I think a lot of us probably have experienced, it's, it's usually actually easiest for us as believers to gather together with people that are just like us. Right? We tend to want to you know, be in places where people have the same passions as us, people care about the same things that we care about, people often have the same giftings that we, we have and we appreciate. And so what happens sometimes is you have churches where everyone kind of gathers together around one particular gift. And this is the gift that they use the most and they celebrate the most and they put on the pedestal. And if you have that gift, you really feel like you belong to that church. But if you don't have that gift, you can feel like you're on the outside looking in. And so we'll take an example. For, for example, some churches, it could be the gift of teaching. And you, you have a, teacher, a preacher that's gifted at teaching and people love to do theology and there's lots of Bible studies going on and people appreciate someone who can handle the word of God. And so what happens sometimes with these churches is if you don't have the gift of teaching and you're not gifted in that way, you can kind of stand on the outside and feel like you don't have anything to contribute because you don't have that gift. Some other churches, it might be that you have the gift of teaching, but you also feel like you're on the outside because maybe at that church, the gift is prophecy. Or maybe at that church, the gift is leadership and you don't have that gift. Or maybe the gift is speaking in tongues. And so we have this reality where oftentimes we, we try to clump together as Christians with people with like gifts. And what that leads to is sometimes we feel like we don't belong if we're on the outside. And Paul says, no, that's not the case. Actually, every member of the body is important. And before I make it sound like this is something only for churches, you know, out there, hypothetically, that, that struggle with, I think this is something that we here also deal with in different ways. All of us, I think, tend towards people who are just like us and have similar giftings. And so one of the reasons we're actually going through this sermon series on spiritual gifts is because we want to acknowledge and affirm all the gifts that God has given to the church. And recognize that in a room this size, I, I think every gift is probably represented from, it, from the Bible. And we want to celebrate that and we want to embrace the gifts that God has given to the church and not just put certain ones on a pedestal or not just give certain gifts priority over others. See, what Paul is saying is that every single member of the body is important. He's saying, don't count yourself out. Don't make yourself feel like you don't have anything to contribute because your outline says this, each member radically affects the rest of the body. Early in September, we did a staff retreat and we uh, took the church staff to Trinity Western University. We did some activities there. And one of the things we did was a little team building activity where we all stood in a circle together. And the leader, she told us, okay, everyone choose two people in the circle, but don't say who they are. And so we all in our minds chose two people in the circle. And she said, when I say go, what you're going to do is you're going to try to stand at equal distance between these two people. Now, not necessarily like you had to be right in between them, but as long as they were both the same distance away from you, that was okay. And so she said, okay, no talking, but when I say go, you're going you're to do this. And so she said go, and it was really quite humorous because everyone was trying to, you know, 
position themselves between these two people as their two people are also doing the same thing. And everyone was just kind of running around the field in this kind of panic and, and frenzy until eventually things settled down and everyone was kind of aligned with their two people. And we, we you know, clapped for ourselves. We were really proud of ourselves. He says, whoa, 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 that's only part one. And we said, okay. So she, she said, okay, I want to choose you and I want to choose you and you're going to switch places right now. And remember, this is a group of 50, and she moves two people. And she says, now you're going to do the same thing. The people I move, they can't just kind of go back to their spots, but everyone's going to now adjust so that you're, you're back at the same distance from your two people. And I was standing there, I'm thinking, okay, this will be easy because my two people, they weren't moved. So they're still standing still, so I can just kind of enjoy some time over here. But what happened was, as soon as, as, soon as she said go, the people that were affected by that little switch, they had to move. And then once they moved, other people started to move. And once those other people started to move, then all of a sudden, all of us are moving around and we're in the exact same confusion we were before. And what she did when we finally settled down, she brought us back together and said, the reality is every single person has a ripple effect that's felt by the rest of the group. And she said, you might not recognize what your, what your ripple effect is. You might not recognize the impact you have on the rest of the group. But she says, you do have an impact on the group, whether you realize it or not. And I think Paul's saying something similar here. He's saying every member actually does affect the rest of the body. Now, you might be sitting here thinking to yourself, well, James, that's a nice story about ripples, and, and I feel really special. But, but you might be thinking, like, let's be honest, this is a pretty big church. And, and let's be honest, how much of an impact can one person actually have on a church this size? And I want to acknowledge that because I think there, there is some truth to this in the fact that we're, what we're not saying here is that things are going to fall apart if one person leaves or if one person moves, right? And, and I think we can just, from experience, recognize that Willingdon Church, it's been actually around for about 60 years. It's been running for many years before we got here. Lord willing, it will continue on many years after we leave. It's, it's never going to fall apart on the basis of just one person. And so I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. But the reality is, anytime someone does leave, anytime someone does get sick and, and is taken out of the, of the picture for a while, there's something that happens to the rest of the body. Whenever someone has, has left who's been serving and using their gifts, what happens is we feel that the next week. And the rest of the body doesn't fall apart, but the rest of the body has to compensate for that loss. And other people need to be raised up as leaders. Other people need to step into those roles of ministry. And we do feel that whenever one person who's using the gifts that God has given them steps aside for a season or, or has to move on. Now, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, actually, James, I'm pretty convinced that even if I left, you know, nobody would, nobody would notice, nobody would recognize, nobody would even notice that I'm gone. Well, then the question I want to ask you is this. Are you actually using the gifts and talents God has given you to serve the church and carry on the ministry? Because I think the reality is, if you are doing that, no matter how insignificant you feel, yes, you, you do have an impact here. But I think the challenge for us at Willingdon is, with a church this size, it's really easy to be anonymous. Right? It's really easy to kind of slip in and slip out without really being involved, without really talking to people, without really using our gifts in any kind of meaningful way. 
And I think, you know, some of you might be here and this is a season where you've been hurt by the church in the past and you're kind of just getting back into the church and, and that's okay for you for a season. Or maybe you're here and you're exploring Christianity and you're just kind of like, what's this all about? I'm not talking about you, but for those of you who call Willingdon your home, how are you using the gifts that God has given you to build up the body of Christ and to carry on his ministry? Because if you are doing those things, Paul says, you will be noticed and you will be missed. Every member has an impact on the rest of the body. And again, if you're, if you're saying, well, I'm using my gifts and, and I'm doing these things, but I still don't feel valued, Paul would, would want to tell you, and I think God will want to tell you, well, no, you are an important part of what's happening here in the body of Christ, and you need to hear that. See, Paul wants to acknowledge that there's those who think too little of themselves in terms of their place in the body of Christ. But he also wants to address the other side of that too. Because there's some people who look at their gifts and they say, well, you know, I have nothing to offer and I'm not really part of what's going on. There's other people that look at their gifts and they kind of, never out loud probably, but they they say something like, well, wow, you know, this church is so lucky that they have such an amazing person like me to be, you know, blessed. And and what happens sometimes is we over-evaluate the gifts that we have and we come with a from a place of pride. And this is what Paul's going to address in, chapter, in verse uh, 21. He says this, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the, feet to the, uh, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may, may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Paul is saying there's no place in the body of Christ for pride. God opposes the proud, the scriptures teaches us. And, and so what happens sometimes, though, is we kind of have this, this kind of thought process where, okay, you know, I have this spiritual gift, so this is something I should, I should be proud of, and I don't need these people, I don't need these people. And, and the question is, how do we fight against this? How do we fight against pride in the body of Christ? I think your outline helps us. It says this, spiritual gifts, we need to realize, are not given on the basis of merit. And in other words, these are spiritual gifts are, in fact, gifts. And gifts, by very definition, they're not something you've earned. There's not, they're not something you work hard and you deserve. They're given to you even though you don't deserve them. But I think what happens sometimes is we almost think of spiritual gifts as like a spiritual reward system. right? Like it's, it's like you completed level one of spirituality, now you get this spiritual gift. And then you complete level two, and now you can have this next spiritual gift. And once you complete level three, you get the next one. We fail to realize sometimes that spiritual gifts are gifts not given to us because we deserve them, given to us because God is gracious. And if that's true, what that also tells us is that spiritual gifts are not actually a very good indicator of spiritual maturity or Christian maturity. I want us to think about this for a minute because I think we often make this equation and it's not very helpful. We often look at people and say, oh, that person has such a gift of leadership. And then we make the conclusion, well, therefore, that person must be such a strong believer. That person must be, you know, have such a vibrant faith. Well, hopefully that's the case, but it's actually not a one-for-one connection. 
because that person didn't get their leadership gift because of something they did. They get, got it as a gift from God. We sometimes we look at people and say, well, that person's such a great teacher. They must have such a vibrant faith and, and a strong relationship with God. And again, we would say we hope so, but it's not a one for one thing. I think of the story in the book of Acts chapter 10 where Peter is preaching the gospel to Cornelius and his family. He's preaching the gospel and they believe in the gospel. And as soon as that happens, the Holy Spirit is poured out and they all begin to speak in tongues. And I got to ask the question, how spiritually mature do you think those believers were when they began to speak in tongues? Well, they, they weren't probably very, they were just baby Christians. They had literally just believed seconds before and here they have this gift of speaking in tongues. And the reason that's possible is because it's not based on anything they've done. It's based on the gifting of God. Earlier in the letter in chapter four, verse seven, Paul asked the church a question. He asked them, what do you have that you did not receive? And I think it's a question we need to ask ourselves. What do we have to offer here at this church that we did not receive from God? And I hope you're thinking to yourself, the answer is actually nothing. Uh, The answer is nothing. Everything that we have to offer is actually a gift from God. And Paul says, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? It makes no sense to boast about a gift that you didn't earn and that you didn't deserve. And Paul's basically saying that's exactly what you're doing and it needs to stop. Because spiritual gifts, actually, they don't say as much about you as they say about the God who gave them to you. And Paul says the point isn't to boast against each other. The point's not to be envious. The point is to build up the body of Christ, to have the same concern for one another. To be a place where if one member suffers, we all suffer together. We don't think, oh, you know, it's too bad about that person, but now I'm going to have this opportunity. No, when when one member suffers, we all suffer together. God chooses which gifts he gives. Paul begins to sum this up in verse 27. He says this, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles... Are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? And just in case you're wondering, the answer to all those questions is no, right? We are not all prophets, we're not all teachers, we don't all work miracles, we don't all speak in tongues. And I think if you're, if you're thinking of the mission of the church as a solo mission where it's just you against the world and you're on your own, if that was true, this would be a terrifying verse to read because you would realize that you you don't actually have all the gifts and you're not actually equipped on your own to complete the mission that God has given to us. But because we are a body, many members, one body, this is actually a great verse because this assures us even though you don't have all these gifts, all these gifts should be represented in the body of Christ to carry on the ministry that God has given to us. And so Paul says, don't worry so much about which gift you have. Don't worry about envy, being envious of the, of the people that have these gifts. Don't look down on the people that have these gifts. Use the gift that God has given you and use it to serve the body. Paul has made a, a pretty strong case, I'd say. And, and, and then it's interesting, we come to verse 31. And verse 31 is the final verse in the chapter. And I think it's, it's probably going to be a little bit surprising what we read here. Look at the text, what it says. It says this, But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. 
Now, I remember a few years ago, I was reading through 1 Corinthians 12. I was studying it in some detail. And I remember working my way up until verse 31 and coming to verse 31 and just being so confused. Because this whole chapter, Paul has been saying, don't be envious, don't be proud, don't play this comparison game. Recognize that God is the one who gives the gifts. You guys are one body, many members. Use what you've been given. And then all of a sudden, verse 31, he says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. And I, was, I just was asking the question, why would Paul spend all this time saying what he said and then turn around and tell the church, but earnestly desire the greater gifts? Didn't make any sense to me. And so I went digging because I'm like, there's got to be something going on here. And, and a lot of scholars and commentators, they recognize, okay, something, something's up here. We've got to figure out what Paul is saying, what he's meaning when he says this. And there's two different ways that people have kind of handled this. The first is they've said, well, we need to kind of figure out a way to nuance what Paul means when he says, earnestly desire the greater gifts. Uh, that greater gifts, what does he actually mean? And I think this is one of the reasons the ESV translated, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Because they want to say, well, it's, it's not to say that any gifts are greater than others, but there's some gifts that have maybe more prominent place or maybe more useful in the church. And, and they might point in the context to the gifts of uh, the apostles, prophets, teachers, and how they're listed there. Uh, they're trying to find a way to say, okay, how could, it, how could Paul be telling us to seek the greater gifts? And they're saying that might be the, what he's talking about, seek some of these gifts. I think the question still becomes, why would Paul spend so much time saying not to fight over these gifts, not to be jealous and envious, if he's about to tell them to seek these gifts? The New Living Translation, they take a similar approach and they translate this, seek the most helpful gifts. And the idea there is that, well, what Paul says, greater gifts, he would probably define the greatest gifts by being the gifts that are the most helpful. And so they just translate, uh, seek the most helpful gifts. I think theologically they're on the right track. The problem is that Paul doesn't say seek the most helpful gifts. He says seek the greater gifts. There's a second option though. And the second option is this. When you look at the Greek text of verse 31, you recognize that Paul can either be giving a command here, seek the greater gifts, or he could be making a statement. You are seeking the greater gifts. Both of these options are are perfectly fine grammatically. It's going to be the context that tells us which way this verb is being used. Is it a command of something you should do? Or is it a description of something you're already doing? Uh, To add to this, we also have the fact that this verb can have a positive and it can have a negative connotation to it. So in other words, this verb to seek something, it can be used positively to seek something in a good way. Or it could be negative to seek something in a not so helpful way, in an envious way. And we see examples of this in the context. So in chapter 14, verse 1, Paul tells the church to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And in that case, I think it's being used in a positive way, this positive desire. However, even before that, in chapter 13, verse 4, as Paul is describing love, he says, love does not envy. And it's the same word there, actually, used in a negative way to talk about desiring something from from a place of envy. And so the two options that we have before us is either Paul is saying, earnestly desire in a positive way the greater gifts and making a command, or it's possible that Paul's making a statement of what they're already doing. And he's saying, you guys are jealously or enviously desiring the greater gifts, and now I will show you a more excellent way. And I think it's probably likely that Paul is doing that second option. 
A Bible teacher, John MacArthur, says this. He says, in context, this could not mean that believers should desire the more prominent gifts. When the whole chapter has just been confronting the fact that they have been simply doing just that. The real imperative is to stop doing that and learn the more excellent way, the way of love. And I think one of our English versions that captures what I think is going on here really well is Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message. He says this, but it's obvious by now, isn't it? That Christ's church is a complete body and not a gigantic unidimensional part. It's not all apostle, not all prophet, not all miracle worker, not all healer, not all prayer in tongues, not all interpreter of tongues. And yet some of you keep competing for so-called important parts. And that, but I want to lay out a far better way for you. I think that's right. And I think actually that's exactly what Paul is going to do in chapter 13. He's going to lay out that far better way. And when you read chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, this is a chapter we often read at weddings, right? This is the love chapter when it's describing love. But what, what it actually is, is Paul saying, let me tell you about how love is so vital within the body of Christ if we're going to carry out these spiritual gifts. We often kind of miss that part of the context that he's just been talking about spiritual gifts in chapter 12. He's going to continue that discussion in chapter 14. Chapter 13 is Paul saying, okay, if you want to go down this road of using the spiritual gifts and, and, and having spiritual gifts, you need to recognize that the foundation of these gifts is that we love one another. And he kind of chooses some of the gifts that they're fighting over. He says, okay, if you can have these gifts, if you have the gift of tongues, or you have the gift of prophecy, or you have the gift of faith, and, and you have the gift of healing, but if you don't have love, they're actually nothing. And Paul says, this is what you should pursue. You should pursue love. And he describes what love looks like. And again, it's not just this romantic love for a husband and wife, although a husband and wife should love each other in this way. This is a love that actually we're called to as a church. And so Paul tells them, you guys are fighting over who's going to get the greatest gift. Let me tell you a better, a better way. And then he talks about love. And then in verse chapter 14, he comes back and he says this, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Now, it's a similar phrase to the end of chapter 12, right? So some people say, oh, there's some, some kind of parallel here. I think what's happening is this. Paul's saying, you're fighting over these gifts. I'm going to show you a better way. And now that in chapter 13, he has showed them that better way. Now we can tell them, okay, now that you know to pursue love, earnestly desire not the greater gifts, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And what Paul goes on to tell them is he says, if you want to know how to determine which gifts to seek, seek the gifts that are going to build up the body of Christ. Don't think about it in terms of what's going to edify you. Think about it in terms of what's going to actually be most helpful for the body of Christ. And how would that change our perspective on spiritual gifts? Right? Well, if we didn't think of spiritual gifts as, okay, what's going to be helpful for me? What do I think is interesting? What do I think is kind of an, a neat gift? What would help my reputation or my ministry? What have we thought about spiritual gifts in the way of looking at the church around us and saying, okay, God, what are the needs that we have as the body of Christ? Where are the places we're lacking? And when we find those needs saying, God, even though this might not be the gift that I would think is the most glamorous, or even though this isn't the gift that I think is maybe the one I would choose for myself, I see a need. And so God, if you would give me this gift, I'll use it to serve the body. What if that was the way we approach spiritual gifts? In love, just using whatever God has given us for the sake of the body and seeking gifts that actually work to build up our brothers and sisters, not just ourselves. 
Your outline says this, use what God has given you to serve him and the body of Christ. And sometimes I like to imagine what it would be like if every person in this room said, yeah, we're going to do that. And if Willingdon became a church where every single member said, yeah, I'm going to use what God has given me to serve the body for the sake of the ministry that God has called us to in this city and in this world. Just imagine how our church would be different if this was the case, if everyone was fully bought into this mission. Imagine what your communities would be like if you, if you did this in, in the places where you worked and played and, and where you learned. Imagine what the city of Burnaby would be like if, as a church, we said, we're all in. We are one body working together. If we decided we don't want to be like the Corinthian church who's kind of wandering around as a body. We want to be like the runner who's running the race with every member working together in perfect unity. To be a body that's, that's moving in one direction for the sake of the gospel. And so my encouragement to you is, we, we've got some decisions to make, don't we? For, for some of you who are, who are bought in and you're using the gifts that God has given you and, you, and you're, you're serving the church, I just want to say thank you for doing that. I want to bless you in that and just thank you for what you're doing in the body of Christ. Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, well, I'd love to be involved, but I actually don't know what opportunities there are. I'm ready, but I'm, I don't know what's out there. If you want, you can go to the resource center after this service. And there's actually going to be some pastors there who can help you talk about ways in which you can be involved and use the gifts that God has given you. And then I think for a lot of us too, we, we need to have a posture in the next few weeks of saying, God, as we talk about these spiritual gifts, God, if you have something for me, if you have maybe a new gift to give or you want to confirm a gift in me or you want to uh, do something, I want to be open to what you have for me. And we might be surprised what God does in our life and what he does in our church, but we, we want to have a posture of saying, God, I'm ready. And I'm ready to use what you've given me to serve the body for the sake of the ministry going forward. It's all for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you that you don't give us what we deserve, but you give us things that are incredible because of the grace and mercy we have through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that your son Jesus died on the cross for our sins so we may have new life with you. And God, we thank you that your Holy Spirit gives gifts to the church that we don't deserve, but we can use to serve the body and carry on the ministry. And so, Father, I pray for those right now who have been faithfully using their gifts, and we just thank you for them and we just want to bless them in that faithfulness and father for those who are about to start a new chapter a new chapter of buying in and using what you've given them father i pray that you just really encourage them in this moment that they would they would just set off in this new adventure and together as a church we would learn what it means to be the body many members unified in one purpose we can't do this without you father so we ask for your help in the name of jesus amen